From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In an area of study as complex as molecular biology, its application to tumor cell development is a vast opportunity for new understanding and new treatment for a horrible disease. While completing her residency in medical oncology at the University of Messina and the Regina Elena Cancer Institute in her home country of Italy, Dr. Carmen Priolo saw a future dedicated to cancer research. So she moved to Boston to continue her postdoctoral research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She now manages her own lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital within the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and the Department of Medicine, where she says she is an educator first and scientist second. On today's episode, Dr. Priolo explains her team's efforts and research clearly defining metabolic features of tumoral disease, identifying biomarkers, and creating more tailored therapeutics. In tuberous sclerosis complex specifically, Dr. Priolo is testing imaging methods to study the metabolic pathways that are at the base of gene mutations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Priolo. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start by asking about your background, um, where you went to school, what you studied. Um, sure. Um, I grew up in Italy. Uh, that is my own country. And uh, I completed medical training and residency in medical oncology in Italy between the University of Messina and the Regina Elena Cancer Institute in Rome. And it was during the last couple of years of my medical training that I realized I wanted to be a physician scientist and dedicated my whole career to oncology research. And therefore, during the last year of my residency, I moved to Boston and uh, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and where then I continued um, through my doctoral and postdoctoral research training in the laboratory of Dr. Massimo Loda. And eventually, I established my laboratory at Brigham Women's Hospital within the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in the Department uh, of Medicine, where I currently work. I always had this interest in oncology um, because oncology somehow um, summarizes all aspects of medicine. It's a quite holistic um, branch of medicine. And I always loved internal medicine, but I also loved um, studying molecular biology. And, and the oncology was for me, represented for me the way to really understand more about um, the biology of cells and um, the all those features that are present during development and then for somehow resume in an aberrant status, which is um, the tumor. And, and, and that was the main motivation why I decided to, um, to, to do um, clinical and molecular oncology. When we talk about metabolism of cancer cells, um, it is a must to um, cite the pioneer in the field, 
um, Otto Enrich Warburg, who was a German physiologist, a chemist, and the medical doctor, uh, and also a Nobel laureate. In 1931, Otto Warburg received the Nobel Prize um, for his studies on uh, oxidative metabolism. And in simple language, when we talk about oxidative metabolism, we um, indicate a series of chemical reactions that utilize oxygen in order to generate energy. And most of these reactions occur in the mitochondria within the cell. What um, Warburg discovered was that tumor cells preferentially use anaerobic respiration, uh, which means that they break down glucose or sugar without the use of oxygen, even in the presence of oxygen, which was very bizarre. And this was the, the paradigm in oncology for a very long, long time. And the critical translational application of this theory was the um, uh, FDG-PET, or fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography, which is an um, uh, imaging technology applied worldwide in, all, um, in clinical oncology to detect um, activity of tumor lesions in the body and to measure total um, tumor burden in the body of patients. Um, in the past 10 years, though, um, several other paradigms have emerged, and they complement the theory, the first theory that Otto Warburg brought forward. And we now know that tumor cells um, utilize their mitochondria, and most tumor cells have well-functional mitochondria. And even more, there is a very um, large heterogeneity across tumor types, and even within the same tumor type across tumors from the metabolic standpoints. So the same type of tumor in two patients may have different metabolic features. And the application of these would be that they could have different sensitivity to certain drugs and they could require different diagnostic procedures during follow-up or diagnosis or evaluation of response to therapy. And this is where my interest really became um, really, really strong. And the goal of my laboratory overall is to um, define phenotypes of um, metabolic features in certain uh, tumoral diseases in order to um, identify biomarkers of those disease and also potential therapeutics in a way that can be personalized, tailored to the patient. Just imagine to have in front of you this very dense network of connections between metabolites. And each metabolite is the product of an enzymatic reaction or even the product of multiple enzymatic reactions. If we zoom in into this network and we identified one very small node, few metabolites connected to each other, and then we slowly, slowly zoom out, we can see that first few nodes converging to the central node and the more and more nodes converging to it until we finally see a large cluster of metabolic connections 
that represent a pathway. This is what we call the metabolic pathway. And this pathway can be anabolic, which means it will lead to building a macromolecule, which could be a protein, a lipid, a nucleic acid, DNA or RNA, or a carbohydrate. Or it could be catabolic, which means it will be breaking down nutrients, sugar, lipids, proteins, in order to make energy. And our goal is to somehow take a picture, a snapshot of the tumor metabolism at a certain time and see whether more anabolic or catabolic processes or which pathways are really activated in that type of tumor. To do that, we can use a large scale analysis by mastertrometry where we can quantify the individual metabolites. We can quantify 1,000, 2,000 metabolites or lipids. And then we rebuild this network through bioinformatic approaches. And then we see what type of reactions are ongoing in the, in the tumor. It could be a patient sample. It could be a preclinical trial using cells in vitro, probably cells derived from a patient tumor. So once we have this global view, we can then zoom in again, and then we go down to identify small clusters of node. So specific metabolic reactions that may be really important for the development of the tumor. And so we what we want is to identify one metabolite or few metabolites or one or few metabolic enzymes and then test whether they are critical for tumor cell survival, tumor cell growth, tumor cell proliferation, metastatic potential of the cells. We asked whether this enzyme or metabolite can be druggable, so can have a therapeutic value. And we ask whether it can serve as a biomarker. And for example, there are metabolites that provide us the um, amazing insight into metabolic imaging, the same principle that was applied to test FDG-PET based on the Warburg theory. And we have these two um, main focuses, which is one is biomarker mainly, um, metabolic imaging biomarkers, and we established a large group of collaboration with the Mass General Hospital, the Gordon Center for Medical Imaging, where we can actually test novel um, radioactive tracers that can be used for novel PET methodologies in preclinical models of diseases. And on the other side, um, we test drugs that can target metabolic pathways in tumor cells without affecting the metabolism of normal cells, which is very challenging, as you can imagine. Uh, the challenge is to identify the specific reaction, disease enhanced in the tumor, uh, to which the tumor is addicted to, which will not be um, essential for a normal cell. And most of our normal cells in the body are more quiescent, um, usually. So we can find some differences that can be exploited. What does your lab study specifically? The main focus of my laboratory since I um, moved to Brigham has been a tuberosclerosis complex. This is a autosomal dominant disease, so it is a genetic disease. 
caused by inactivated mutations of the one of the TSC genes, TSC1 or TSC2. Um, it, it's a um, multi-organ uh, disease characterized by a formation of benign tumors called amartomas, virtually in every organ of the body. Uh, the brain, the kidney, the lung, the skin, and several others. In, in childhood, um, the disease, the prevalence of disease is one in six to 10,000 live birth. So it is quite common. Uh, in childhood, um, the clinical manifestations mainly relate to neurological problems. So they include epilepsy, uh, mental retardation, uh, sleep disorders, um, autism, and uh, which can be due to um, organic problems such as cortical tubers, um, which are the neoformation in the brain. The first um, pathological manifestation that was analyzed in patients with TSC, post-mortem in the brain um, of these patients, and give the name to the disease because tuberosclerosis comes from tuber, which is a Latin word um, that means root, and sclerosis comes from the, a Greek word meaning heart, so it's hard root in the brain. Also, uh, children may have uh, brain tumors, and so they often undergo several surgeries. Um, while they become adult, uh, the kidney disease becomes predominant uh, in the form of uh, amartomas such as angiomyolipomas, which are very um, composite tumors um, characterized by different type of cells growing all together in a mass. By 2-3% of patients, uh, renal cancer can arise um, as well. So differential diagnosis at the clinical level is very, very important for these uh, children and adults with TSC. In the lung, the, um, the most characteristic manifestation is called lymphangioliomyomatosis. It's a very complicated, long name, and uh, we call it LAM. Symptomatic LAM, I think it could occur in about 10% of uh, TSC patients. And when I say symptomatic, I mean a lamb that progresses to respiratory failure. But evidence, radiological evidence of, of lamb can occur in, uh, in many more patients, um, I think up to 80% of the patients. Uh, pathologically, what happens is lamb is characterized by cystic destruction of the lung associated with diffuse proliferation of cells that harbor the TSC mutation. So there are two um, pathogenetic events going on. The cells proliferate, but at the same time, the cysts are formed in the lung, destroy the parenchyma, and this leads to respiratory failure, need for oxygen supplementation, and eventually lung transplant. Lung can also carry a sporadic disorder where Somatic mutation of the TC gene can occur in the lung. So this is not uh, genetically inherited anymore. 
And in this case, even patients, women with sporadic clam, sporadic clam is a, um, a women disease. And uh, women with LAM also have renal angiomyolipomas and extra pulmonary, extra pulmonary manifestations. From the molecular uh, standpoint, the disease is caused by um, hyperactivation, I would say perpetual activation of a kinase complex called mammalian target of rapamycin complex 1 or mTORC1. Um, TSC1 and TSC2 gene encode for two proteins that are the guardian of mTORC1. They prevent mTORC1 to be hyperactive. In the disease, either at the germline level in tuberosclerosis complex or at the somatic level in sporadic LAM, the complex of TSC1 and TSC2 doesn't work anymore. And so M2C1 is free to be hyperactive. And M2C1 is a, the master regulator of cell growth and metabolism in the cell, pretty much in all cells of the body. Think that M2C1 is aberrantly activated in about 80% of all human tumors, all human tumors. And in this monogenic disease, which is TSC, that's, this is the main driver of the entire disease. No other mutations have been found. And this makes the connection between our studies on metabolism and TSC. Because the, at the base of the pathogenesis of the disease, there is a lot of metabolic aberration that occur in the um, tumor cells in patients with TSC. Also, uh, this is a rare disease, and what I have appreciated after so many years of working on prostate cancer, a very common disease, I moved from one um, edge of the spectrum to the other, and what I realized is how the um, connection, the um, partnership between patient, patient advocates, um, physician and scientist, it really um, helped move the, the field forward Sometimes for rare disease, it's not really easy to find cure. And uh, in this case, instead, we have these large groups that are really collaborating and talking to each other. And the, the, the ways we do that is mainly through organizations such as the Tuberosclerosis um, Alliance and the Lam Foundation in the USA, the Tuberosclerosis Association in UK that the really, really created this trade union that um, helped move everything forward and develop a large research program also at the NIH and the Department of Defense level. I feel really fortunate to have my laboratory at Brigham Women's Hospital because Boston is the city of seminal discoveries on TSC. And among others, um, I should definitely say that the TSC1 gene, which is one of the causative genes of the disease, have been, has been identified by Dr. Kiyakowski at Brigham Women's Hospital. So there is a very lo a long tradition on studying this disease. And we can also, we benefit, um, large benefit from access to patient samples through the um, Center for Lamb Research and Clinical Care at Brigham Women's Hospital, which is one of the largest lamb clinics in the country, directed by Dr. Elizabeth Tensky. Um, who actually recruited me to Brigham several years ago, 
um, to study metabolism in these diseases. So we have access to samples, we have access to knowledge, and this really makes our work um, not just easier, but more interesting, interesting, intriguing, and productive. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Priolo. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. I had the sense from that that science can do wonderful things, but can also have consequences that are not so wonderful. Um, that was the first time I'd ever really been involved in any way of, of something that you might call political or, or social activism. We feature the first part of our conversation with chemist and bacterial geneticist Dr. Jonathan Beckwith of Harvard Medical School. On this episode, Dr. Beckwith chronicles his own overlapping experiences of science and social activism during the political climate of the 1960s and 70s. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.